Today's podcast comes from the AUA 2018 Annual Meeting in San Francisco. This will be the entire recording of a course entitled Contemporary Pharmacotherapy for OAB. This course will describe the physiological and pharmacological underpinnings of modern drug treatment of overactive bladder, including combination therapy. Currently available agents, as well as drugs in development, will be discussed. CME is available for this podcast at the AUA University, university.auanet.org. Yes. Uh, good morning. My name is Eric Rovner. I want to welcome you to um, today's course on contemporary overactive, contemporary pharmacology for overactive bladder. Let's see if I can get this to work. So um, I want to welcome you. It's, it's a real pleasure to be asked to do this course again. We've done it several years in a row now. Uh, this, the, uh, the speakers don't change, but the slides do. Um, and some of the information uh, obviously changes year to year. Uh, I'm Eric Rovner. I'm from the Medical University of uh, South Carolina. Uh, it's a real honor to have uh, our two uh, faculty members here with me, Chris Chappell from Sheffield, uh, England, and uh, Alan Wien from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. So I have some um, general uh, statements here that uh, I'm supposed to tell you. Um, uh, AUA policy states that uh, we have to be uh, clear about our disclosures. You can go to the AUA website, uh, which will list all of our disclosures, aua2018.org. Please silence all of your cell phones. There are no photos, videos, or audio recordings allowed uh, during this session. Uh, at the conclusion of the session, please uh, complete an evaluation uh, of uh, the session. Uh, the AUA uh, picks the courses for the following year based on your evaluation. So uh, if you uh, like the course, we'll have the course again uh, next year. If you don't like the course, still give us a good evaluation so that we can do the course again uh, next year. Uh, you can do your evaluations in a number of different ways. There's a course evaluation station uh, down the hall. Uh, you can use uh, the AUA application, mobile app, uh, to do the course evaluation, uh, and also you can log on to the AUA website. Um, okay, I think that was everything. Uh, the uh, um, the uh, app uh, directions that she had emailed me this morning, uh, they're not up here. The polling directions. Yep, there we go. So there's an audience response system. There'll be several questions at the very beginning. Um, if you downloaded the AUA app uh, for the meeting, uh, you can scroll to the course, uh, this course. I did it this morning, so I know it works. Uh, and then uh, click on polling, uh, and you'll be able to answer the questions, and you'll see uh, everybody else's answers as well as your own uh, polling. So I'll give you a few min uh, a minute to uh, go to the, uh, the meeting app, uh, then you access it um, uh, and you enter your email and your password uh, and that gives you the ability to search. Uh, you search this course uh, and then uh, look down at the bottom. Uh, there'll be an area for uh, polling. So if you again go to search, you search the course, uh, Contemporary Pharmacology of Overactive Bladder, it will take you to this course let me make sure that it still works. It worked this morning. Yep, and then you go to the course and you click on polling at the very bottom. 
and then you will be uh, logged in um, uh, as we get to the first question. So on to the course. Uh, these are our learning objectives. Uh, there's a lot of them. Uh, this, it's, a, it's two hours of, of full information, but hopefully you'll get a, a good sense of contemporary pharmacology for overactive bladder, physiology, pharmacology, uh, even some discussions on nocturia, and then, and then future directions. That's our agenda. Uh, it's an aggressive agenda. We hope to get through all of it, uh, including uh, all the way down to the end where we will have some questions and answers. The forum will be open uh, to ask questions. So if, you, if you've opened your polling uh, on the AUA app, this is the first question. And this has to do with DDAVP and the treatment of nocturia, which we'll talk about later. The risk of hyponatremia with the use of DDAVP is A, increased with fluid restriction in the evening, B, mitigated by concomitant use of oral alpha blockers, C, less likely to occur in the elderly, uh, or D, uh, uh, greater in patients with low baseline serum sodium. So uh, I then click again, um, and uh, we can answer. Let's see, did it come up? Go, click one more. Go back. So should I click again? Oh, there it is, okay. Okay. Good. Next question. Beta-3 agonists. Uh, a, as a class, are more effective than anti-muscarinics. B, prevent dry mouth via the same mechanism as pilocarpine. C, exert their favorable effects, at least in part, by a similar mechanism of action as norepinephrine. D, uh, are associated with bradycardia and hypotension uh, in the elderly. So go ahead and vote. Again, do I go... I go through it. Okay. Okay. Well, you'll have a lot to learn about that. Okay. Next question, question three. Patient-related goal achievement, which we'll talk about in just a moment is mandated as a standard outcome measure by both AUA and FDA for clinical trials of pharmacologic agents for OAB. B, set by the practitioner to be equaled or surpassed by the patient at a clinically appropriate interval. C, assessed at a four-week interval following initial trial of an oral pharmacologic agent. Or D, is an alternative method of assessing response to interventions for some OAB therapies. And we'll click forward. That goes so fast, I'm not sure you have time to read them. Um, now we're okay, we'll keep going. All right, fourth question. As compared to monotherapy with solifenosin 5, combination therapy with solifenosin 5 and mirabegron 50 is associated with A, a lower incidence of dry mouth, B, greater reduction in urinary urgency episodes, C, gives a higher risk of symptomatic bradycardia, or D, has a less risk of urinary retention. So go ahead and answer. 
Okay. And then finally, question five. Phase three studies for overactive bladder have demonstrated efficacy for which of the following agents? Uh, A, TRPM8 antagonists. B, NK1 antagonists. C, mu receptor agonists. Or D, beta-3 agonists. So go ahead and vote. Okay, good. All right. So let's move on with the, uh, with the course. So you'll, uh, as a register of this course, you'll get a follow-up email uh, uh, or text or something from the AUA with those same questions uh, that you get to answer again uh, to see whether we have actually taught you anything uh, through, the, uh, through the course. So a few minutes on patient expectations and overactive bladder. Um, when we, when we uh, the rest of the course is going to be basically all about physiology and pharmacology, but how do we measure uh, ultimately uh, what we are doing, which is treating our patients and, and our outcomes? You're all familiar with how we measure our outcomes. If, uh, if we're a physician, if we're a regulatory agency, FDA, uh, EMEA, or, or industry, uh, we generally have ways that we measure, such as diaries and pads and uh, uh, even PROs. But, but that's not the way our patients actually uh, look at how we treat their overactive bladder. Even with patient-reported outcomes, they're given a question, and then they have to answer that question. And that may not be the question or questions uh, that they want answered. So what does the patient want or expect? And, and in that background, as you'll see from Dr. Chappell's uh, uh, talk, OAB is, is really a complicated problem. Uh, natural history is variable. What works today doesn't necessarily work tomorrow. We don't really understand what hap how each patient's overactive bladder uh, comes about, and certainly there's many contributing factors. The optimal treatment for any individual patient is unclear. Uh, what agents should we start at? What dose? And we don't, we don't define cure and improvement very well, although we think we do. We're not very good. And to borrow uh, one of the great quotes in urology from Willett Whitmore, this, he said this about prostate cancer. I'm not sure that it's such uh, not applicable to overactive bladder. In fact, I think it is uh, with respect to overactive bladder. Is cure necessary in those for whom it's possible? And is cure possible in those for whom it is, is necessary? So, so one of the battles we have with overactive bladder is an aging bladder. The urinary tract is not like cheese and fine wine. Uh, it does not get better with age. It either stays the same uh, or gets worse. And we sort of all know that. Um, and, and, and if we measure time longitudinally, we, we repeat uh, urodynamics or symptom scores, what have you, we know that, that detrusor overactivity increases, detrusor underactivity increases, and certainly comorbidities increase with time, all of which impacts the way that we, we treat our patients. And then there's a variety of, of comorbidities, of course, none of which go away with age uh, as, as we uh, move on and get, get, get older. Uh, cardiac disease, diabetes, neurological problems, all of which can, over, can, can impact lower urinary tract symptoms. And, 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 and Chris is going to give you a wonderful talk on pathophysiology of overactive bladder, but it's a complicated problem. And I would, I would say that if we had 10 patients in the room, uh, they would have 10 different etiologies for their overactive bladder, potentially, potentially 10 different etiologies for their overactive bladder. So despite these complexities, obviously a very complex condition, what do our patients expect? And I, I, I would say that they probably don't expect that, but some do. Uh, and, and in that case, 
uh, talking about expectations uh, is quite important. When we, when we give a drug, we always balance frequency urgency, uh, a change in, in volume voids versus adverse effects, dry mouth constipation effects on, on uh, central nervous system. Uh, and of course, in the states, we have the three C's. Uh, when we talk to our patients, it's costs and co-pays uh, and convenience. So patients may expect resolution of urgency frequency nocturia. Maybe they expect some improved quality of life and no adverse effects, uh, or, or maybe not. May, may, maybe they don't expect, have, have such expectations. Um, and, and that's borne out in a couple of examples I'll, I'll show you. So this is uh, the ABC trial, which is a well-done randomized controlled trial of Botox versus antimuscarinics, published a couple years ago in New England Journal. And patients were randomized to antimuscarinics or Botox 100 units. And the primary outcome was urgent cotton episodes at, uh, at six months. But if you look at dry rates, so your patients who come in to see you and, and they want to be dry, uh, I'm not sure they actually want to be dry. They, that, that may not be their expectation. That's borne out here where the dry rates in both groups, uh, that is the Botox group and, and the antimuscarinic group, was extraordinarily low. Uh, so the dry rates in the antimuscarinic arm were 10 or 13 percent, and then the Botox arm were 23 to 27 percent. But if you look at who was happy, just ask the patient using a PGII, are you happy? Are you better on either therapy? You're actually, your success rates are much higher. So patients didn't have to get dry uh, to be better. And it's important to remember that patient goals are often not aligned with what we think they ought to be. And patients achieving those goals are also not necessarily aligned with what we think they ought to be. And, and dry is certainly one example. So, so what is the patient then asking for when they come into you with overactive bladder and, and, and you start medication? Is it, is it something that you need to ask them what their goals are? And this is some work that Linda Brubaker has done uh, over the years using uh, uh, self-assessment goal achievement. But basically, it's a complex questionnaire, but, but in essence, it asks the patient what they want from the intervention. And, and she's applied this in a number of different areas, uh, including prolapse and stress incontinence and interstitial cystitis. And basically, you ask the patient, so you're coming to see me, uh, uh, and, and what can I do for you? What do you want to get out of this therapy? It's a very simple way to, to, to treat overactive bladder, but it sort of uh, uh, gives you uh, some idea of, of what your patient might want. And, and this was applied in a paper that we wrote a couple of years ago uh, in, in neurology and neurodynamics, looking at uh, patient uh, uh, outcomes in neurogenic detrusor overactivity treated with, uh, with Botox. Uh, and basically, we, we gave the patients, the, the patients actually gave us a number of different outcomes that they wanted from their, from their Botox. Uh, and, and what we learned from this, actually, is it's a great separator of drug and placebo, because if you, if you actually ask the patient what they want, uh, it really gives you a drug effect uh, versus a placebo where the patients really d uh, didn't achieve what they wanted depending on, on what their outcome, and there's a variety of different outcomes. It's not particularly important what each of these uh, outcomes uh, were. So in summary, when we look at patient uh, uh, sort of expectations uh, of OAB therapy, I think the traditional measures, uh, they may not capture some very important data uh, that your patient may or may not be communicating to you or you may or may not be asking uh, your patients. And that's even when you use a patient report outcome measure, uh, sort of a standardized questionnaire. OAB is complicated. Our patients are complicated. But again, communication uh, is key, setting realistic expectations, and understanding what the patient's uh, goals are.
So with that, I'm going to move on to the uh, overactive bladder guidelines, pharmacotherapy guidelines. Uh, this should be familiar to most of you. Uh, and then uh, Chris will go over, Dr. Chappell will go over the EAU uh, guidelines. Uh, so a little bit on this, the basically SUFU overactive bladder guidelines, sort of an introduction. The benefits of the guideline are threefold, uh, and that's all of the AUA guidelines or all the medical guidelines that we use. There are benefits to the patient, uh, benefits to the physician, and benefits to the healthcare uh, system. Uh, from the physician's perspective, it gives us a framework of what the correct choices of care are. Uh, for the patient, uh, presumably, uh, it gives uh, optimization of care with respect to diagnostic or therapeutic interventions and might even expedite the patient through the healthcare system if we have a guideline uh, which is not really a clinical care pathway but, but at least gives uh, the practitioner the steps uh, to, to, uh, to get the patient uh, through the healthcare system and, and optimize uh, their, their treatment. And then finally, for the healthcare system, there's certainly uh, efficiencies uh, with respect to uh, cost. Uh, and utilization of, of resources. So lots of different benefits. The AUA guideline actually originally was published uh, several years ago. Uh, this, these are the panel members. Uh, there was an update in 2014, uh, and we'll go over uh, both of these and what the difference uh, is on the updated guideline. So the purpose of the OAB guideline was to provide direction for clinicians and patients with respect to recognition of OAB, diagnosis of OAB, and management. The goals of the guideline were to maximize symptom control and quality of life while minimizing adverse events and patient burden. And in being a guideline, it was recognized it's going to have to be updated. And in fact, it probably will uh, be updated. Uh, the AUA constantly updates their guidelines uh, uh, as time goes on. So the original guideline methodology is based on some work done in 2009 from the AHRQ. Uh, this was uh, originally the document was only overactive bladder in women. The AUA guideline actually is, uh, covers all overactive bladder in both genders. 151 articles were selected of over 5,000 in the literature, uh, but 151 were selected based on, on, on quality. So if you look at the way the AUA does all of their guidelines, and it changes from time to time, but when they were doing this guideline, uh, the, uh, each of the studies were rated for quality. A study could be a high-quality study, rated as A. That would be a well-conducted randomized control trial. B would be moderate level of evidence, which is a randomized control trial with some weaknesses. And C, low level of evidence uh, studies with small sample sizes or a variety of other flaws. And if you take uh, all of your uh, uh, papers and you you, you, you grade their uh, evidence, you can come up with recommendations. And again, the way the guidelines work is uh, you can come up with a recommendation, a statement that's linked to the evidence, and a statement that's a standard means that whether the statement is phrased in the positive or the negative, clearly the benefits uh, are greater uh, than the risks, or the risks are greater than the benefits, but you can make a, a statement with a strong level of evidence. That's a standard. A recommendation is the benefits are clearly greater, or, or the risks are clearly greater, but the evidence isn't quite so strong. And then options are when the benefits sort of equal the risks. It doesn't matter what the level of evidence is. And if there's no evidence, or very little evidence, it can be a clinical principle or an expert opinion. A clinical principle is something that's widely agreed upon, which there may or may not be evidence. For example, the sky is blue. That would be clinical principle. Uh, and an expert opinion is the consensus of the panel for which there's uh, basically no evidence, and an expert opinion would be blue is a nice color for a sky. 
Okay, so that's the difference between uh, uh, principles and, and opinions. Why am I telling you all this? Because when you go through the literature, uh, for the, that's the, o, the OAB guideline is based on, what you come up with is three standards, uh, three recommendations, two options, and a lot of cl clinical principles and expert opinion, which means that our evidence base for a lot of the things that come out of the guideline uh, is not very strong. Three standards, uh, and is that really an indictment of our own literature? So with respect to the diagnosis of overactive bladder, it is what you would expect it to be. We need a history, a physical exam, and a urine analysis. Uh, that is a clinical principle. There's actually no evidence to say that that's the way to make a diagnosis of overactive bladder. Uh, again, uh, that is that the sky is blue. So history, physical urine analysis. Uh, additional optional procedures uh, such as cultures and post-void residuals, diary, symptom questionnaires. Again, they're optional. That's a clinical principle. Again, no really strong evidence uh, to state that. It's, it's part of uh, what we believe, but there's no evidence. And unnecessary cystoscopy, urodynamics, and ultrasonography, again, a clinical principle. Um, we should provide education uh, to the patients regarding overactive bladder. It's an expert opinion that no treatment is an acceptable choice made by some patients. Uh, that is an expert opinion. Uh, that's no evidence. And, and I'm particularly surprised uh, by that statement. Uh, we don't know what happens uh, if we don't treat uh, these patients for a long period of time. There's few uh, longitudinal studies, but not many. Uh, so I'm not sure that's an acceptable choice if we don't actually know what happens. Uh, first-line therapies include uh, behavioral therapies, bladder training, et cetera. And these, as first-line therapy, can combine with antimuscarinics, as uh, Dr. Wien will talk to you uh, later. Second-line treatments include all the oral antimuscarinics. There's no hierarchy in the OAB guideline, the AUA uh, guideline. All of the antimuscarinics are graded uh, the same, and Alan will show you the grading system and, uh, and the ICI recommendations regarding that. Extended release formulations should be preferentially prescribed over IR formulations. Transdermal is acceptable. Uh, if there's inadequate symptom uh, relief, uh, we can increase the dose or you can give an alternative antimuscarinic. Should manage all side effects. Uh, if the drug is working, you should manage the side effects as needed, fluid management, oral uh, lubricants, uh, sialagogues. Uh, and uh, if it's refractory, if your patient's refractory to behavioral medical therapy, uh, refer to a specialist. And then third-line therapies include sacral neuromodulation, PTNS. And at the time the guideline was written, uh, overactive uh, uh, Botox for overactive bladder was not approved, but in the subsequent uh, guideline, uh, it was approved. So there was an amendment to the guideline published in 2014 in which an additional number of papers uh, was uh, included, 72 additional articles. Now there was a, a in that two-year period, there was a good deal of information on Mirabegron that had come out, PTNS, sacral neuromodulation, and Botox. And then uh, because of Mirabegron, a lot of the pharmacological recommendations, which you will hear about shortly, uh, change. So behavioral therapies can be combined with pharmacologic therapy, not just antimuscarinics. And clinicians can offer oral antimuscarinics or beta-3s. And uh, if uh, you have inadequate symptom relief with antimuscarinics, beta-3s are acceptable. And uh, we can prescribe beta-3s or antimuscarinics in the frail overactive bladder patient. Uh, the PTNS statement was changed from a recommendation, I'm sorry, changed to a recommendation from an option based on better data. And uh, Botox uh, was changed to a standard uh, from an option based on new data and approval uh, by the AUA. So now it is a standard uh, treatment. Finally, um, 
they, uh, the updated guideline gave us some guidance on the amount of time we ought to try these uh, interventions, and an adequate trial of pharmacologic therapy would be four to eight weeks, and an adequate trial of behavioral therapy uh, would be eight to 12 weeks. So that's actually the guideline. Uh, it's uh, published on the AUA website. I encourage you to look at it if you're not uh, familiar with it. It's not particularly relevant uh, uh, to the rest of the course. So with that, I, we, will, uh, we will move on uh, to the EAU guidelines and uh, Professor Chappell. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's a great honor and pleasure to be here, and I'm grateful to Professor Rovner and Professor Ween for kindly inviting me to join them. What I'm going to present to you, there's going to be some overlap, of course, with the last excellent talk on the AUA guidelines, so I'll try and expedite that. Those are my conflicts of interest. The AU guidelines are updated every year, with a major update for each guideline every three years, but there's a new version every year. And they use a so-called PICO approach, which is to look at the population indication comparator outcome, which you may be familiar with as a standard Cochrane methodology. And this is the guidelines which were published at, from Copenhagen just a few months ago. These are the latest ones. The latest development in the guidelines is that they now use the grade approach as well. So you don't have recommendations which are A, B, and C, but they're either weak or strong. Because if with a B recommendation, it's neither this nor that, is it? And so that's the reason for this, with a grade which is the latest methodology in, in guideline development. The guidelines are now the, the standard across Europe and have also been adopted by all these countries as a standard for those countries in terms of the evidence base. They're freely available on the internet. The latest version is only available to members in its full version. The principle of the guidelines that we use, rather like the AUA, is the Cochrane uh, approach. Archie Cochrane was in Aberdeen and set up the principle of guidelines, which was really the understanding that there's too much information out there. We're all busy clinicians, and the principle of this is to basically draw out the evidence, provi provide it in a palatable format, and allow people to draw conclusions based on that. So in other words, to look at the high-quality relevant evidence. One of the issues which has been addressed in the literature over the last couple of years is the problem with meta-analyses. You may well be familiar with an, with an evidence base that meta-analyses are often considered to be high quality. But unfortunately, the evidence in will dictate what comes out the other end. And the trouble with some meta-analyses is that they don't actually take account of the quality of the underlying evidence. And it's the old principle, rubbish in, rubbish out. Now, certainly when I first trained, then it, I, I was in the, uh, trained along the principles of eminence base. But now in the modern age, we're into, of course, the uh, evidence-based approach, which is what we're talking about here. So this is the way in which our guidelines are presented. There's no doubt strong evidence that you need to assess the urine, as we heard from the last talk. You need to obviously think about symptoms, bearing in mind the reservations that symptoms may not always, um, as expressed by the patient, be the ones that are most important to them. And obviously, um, you need to use a bladder diary, and there's no there is no doubt that bladder diaries should be used in both men and women with lonely tract symptoms. That's well established, it's in every guideline, but I have to say in clinical practice, probably 90% of patients aren't actually exposed to this. And that underpins the placebo response that you see in many trials, where for the first time they're actually starting to use a bladder diary. 
because it actually gives biofeedback to the patient, allows them to interpret their fluid intake and so on. A bladder diary, usually three days is adequate. I don't usually measure intake, but output. Obviously, if you're worried because there's a huge output, then intake can be useful. But remember that many dietary um, constituents, such as vegetables, are 90% water, so difficult to measure. Of course, we all use bladder diaries by ultrasound. We all, sorry, use bladder scanning with ultrasound, and there's strong evidence for that. The use of the bladder diary and the residual are important because, remember, overactive bladder is a, not a condition. It's a symptomatic diagnosis of storage symptoms. And the reason most men with so-called BPH come and see us is because they have overactive bladder symptoms. So therefore, when one talks about BPH, that's not a condition either. It's a label. Overactive bladder is a label. It's a storage symptoms. And somebody with severe underactivity with a large residual will have severe OAB because they're not emptying their bladder very clearly. So one, I would suggest to you conceptually, think about normal functional capacity, reduced functional capacity, and particularly in the context of bladder pain syndrome, think about reduced anatomical capacity. The normal bladder capacity, of course, functionally is between 3 and 600 mils. Children, when they're born, have a 50 mil capacity, which increases 30 mils per year up to puberty as a proxy. Within the normal voiding volume, of course, you may have uh, increased frequency. If you've got excessive fluid intake, dietary intake, osmotic diuretics, or diabetes, of course, you may have a reduced functional capacity for many different reasons. Of course, overactivity shown urodynamically, increased residuals, severe symptoms, or of course, you may have other pathology, rare pathology such as carcinoma in situ. And that, of course, is a factor that we as clinicians realize. If you go on to do an examination under anesthetic, then if there's a reduced anatomical capacity on cystic distension, this can be due to many conditions that lead to inflammation and fibrosis of the bladder. And in recent years, we're seeing more patients now, for instance, that have ketamine-induced bladder problems. So one has to bear in mind this hierarchy of approach using the bladder diary, the residual, allows you to make a diagnosis and treat people effectively. The upper tract imaging, as we heard, there's strong evidence you don't need to routinely use that. Pad testing can be useful, but is tedious outside clinical studies, and therefore the evidence for actually weighing it is limited. Urodynamics clearly can be effective, but it has to be used appropriately. As Dr. Rovner has shown with um, onomotulinum toxin and others have shown with anticholinergics, the evidence is that you don't alter outcomes specifically from the trials to date, by using urodynamics, but it is very useful to get to the underlying condition, in other words, like a stethoscope is in examining a patient. And therefore, it has to be used selectively. And urodynamics carried out by somebody who doesn't know what they're doing, who hasn't taken the history themselves, and who's doing it as a mechanical exercise is probably often not worth the paper it's written on, particularly when we look at central reading in many studies and realize what the level of expertise is where often one has to reject 30 to 40% of the urodynamic studies due to failure of subtraction, uh, under, under misunderstanding the whole concept, etc. Of course, if one moves on to disease management, as we heard, fluid intake and attention to diet and so on are important. There's no doubt that aspects such as pelvic organ prolapse uh, and, of course, uh, management of, with pelvic floor physiotherapy and so on are very helpful. And if one looks at the evidence base, you can see that all of this is catered for in the guidelines in terms of recognition that first-line treatment 
is d d diverted towards considering lifestyle modification, diet, fluid intake, and of course concomitant problems such as pelvic organ prolapse, as shown there. So therefore, it's very important to, when you're thinking about the patient, not just to reach for the prescription pad, but to look globally, holistically at the patient as to what the underlying problem is. And therefore, it's very important to look at the voiding pattern, bladder training, and to provide the patient with containment products whilst you're trying to get them better so that you actually deal with the underlying problem whilst you try and treat it. It's very important also to bear in mind that pelvic floor muscle training is important, as we all know, although often not used as effectively as it might be. And it's very important to treat the bothersome symptoms, although the level of evidence for that is weak. It just seems to be common sense. As we heard already, the anticholinergics, despite the marketing, are very similar in terms of their efficacy. The only different compound in the whole group is trospium, which is a quaternary amine with a 4% bioavailability, which may be somewhat safer in the elderly because it's less likely to be, to be uh, taken into the body. And also remember that oxybutynin and propivirine are not pure antimuscarinics, but are mixed action compounds, as we'll hear more about later. So if you look at the anticholinergics, there's clear evidence that they are effective. We also know that there are adverse events associated with them. And in the elderly, it's become topical recently, although, to be honest, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a new story. It's been going on for 20 years that there may be, of course, downsides in terms of cerebral function with anticholinergics based on the fact that many other drugs that are taken on board also have anticholinergic properties. And if you've got impaired cerebral function with an anticholinergic on board, it may lead to diminution of that function. Mirabegron, an agent that came along, which was a failed drug for, uh, as an anti-obesity drug. Remember that no trials, in animal, from, uh, no trials have ever emanated from animal work successfully. With all, most of the developments in this field have been serendipitous. The beta-3 agonist, clearly, there's now strong evidence in the latest guidelines that it's equally effective to an anticholinergic. And it does not act, unfortunately, unlike the recommendation or the wording from the FDA about relaxing the bladder because it doesn't increase residuals, as you'll hear later. It may relax it, but by an effect, as you'll see in my talk, on the afferent system. And of course, there's a new agent, Vibegron, which is coming towards the market. I believe it's going to be trialed more in North America. There's a recent publication, and time will tell how that fits in. Drugs for stress incontinence in Europe. Duloxetine is licensed, but we've not found it effective, despite the marketing discussion about it acting on honest nucleus, it's a centrally acting compound which is marketed at a higher dose than the dose, of the, than the dose of the same compound for depression. It has central effects which mitigate against its widespread acceptance and use by patients. And if one's looking at mixed incontinence, it's very important to try and identify the predominant problem. And most people would suggest the use of treatment directed at the storage component before moving on to treatment of stress incontinence. We'll hear more about desmopressin later and the latest developments in that area, but there's now strong evidence of its potential efficacy. On a botulinum toxin, there's strong evidence, as we've heard, just like the AUA guidelines, and the same goes for sacral neuromodulation. Po po posterior tibial nerve stimulation, I did not highlight, but in the guidelines, seems to be slightly better than anticholinergics, but there is no good long-term data, robust data, which has limited uh, comments on that. One mustn't forget cystoplasty, 
an old operation, the clam cystoplasty, uh, which came out many years ago from the UK. But again, most people would not use this outside neuropathic population because of the fact that it has a number of potential complications and the evidence base for it is relatively weak. Efficacy in mixed urinary incontinence, if one's talking about drug therapy uh, for refractory OB and so on, again is something which we can discuss at times there, but really the evidence base on the whole is fairly weak for uh, which symptom to treat mo first, but it's clear evidence that you should try and treat with pharmacotherapy the storage component first. Aging is obviously an important factor. The evidence base, despite the rhetoric at present, is limited. And of course, there are the similar algorithms for both women and men that we've seen for the AUA. So what I've just tried to give you is an overview. You can see that the EAU and AUA guidelines are very similar. The principle in the EAU guidelines now is that we are looking at weak and strong evidence, which I think is particularly helpful to the clinician. And I think the next stage on in the future is to use algorithms with artificial intelligence to plumb this evidence in to help us in our clinical practice. But don't forget simple measures such as a bladder diary will actually augment the therapeutic efficacy. So for instance, with a bladder diary in a recent study which we did a review of, the placebo effect was interesting because it was related to bladder training. The patients on placebo were drinking less. The patients on drug therapy were drinking more than they had at baseline, but that was seen as placebo effect, but it was actually because of bladder training. So don't forget that. Now, obviously, the next question is what one's dealing with in terms of overactive bladder. Obviously, we're talking about lonely tract symptoms. Now, as clinicians, we love labels. We like to talk about OAB, BPH, interstitial cystitis. But we need to dive behind that. We love to think about treatment being directed at the detrusor muscle. But it isn't, in fact. The effects on the detrusor muscle, with all our therapies, are negative effects as a consequence of the therapeutic effectiveness of those agents. But the treatment we're aiming at with overactive bladder is a symptom, urgency. Now, the trouble is that urgency has never been adequately quantified through a SEAL process, and that is a background between the disparity between North America and the rest of the world in terminology. We here talk about urge incontinence, which is a misnomer. I'm sorry to be European about it. Urge is a normal sensation, the urge to go, which you can control. Urgency is a compelling desire to pass urine, which is difficult to defer. So if you have incontinence, it's not because you have a normal desire, it's because you have an, a desire to go which you can't control. That's why we call it urgency incontinence. But the FDA, quite rightly, because it's never been possible to prove it, even though they accept urgency as a pivotal symptom, and that's why most of the trials look at urgency incontinence as a primary outcome measure, because you can measure it. It's very important, therefore, to think when you're talking about symptoms about what we're actually talking about, and I'll try and go through that. I was very lucky to train by one of the, um, the doyens of the field, like Alan Ween, who really have emphasized the importance of thinking about what you're dealing with from a perspective which is the patient's perspective, an academic perspective, and a holistic approach. For instance, if you're taking symptoms, 
as Turner Oric always used to say, the bladder is an unreliable witness because symptoms are not disease specific. Frequency can be due to many different things. Of course, as I've already mentioned, Patients have difficulty often expressing their symptoms, and we certainly aren't blameless. We have our own baggage. We interpret symptoms as we wish. How on earth can you interpret nocturia unless you measure it? How on earth can you assess the functional capacity unless you measure it? How can you look at voiding efficiency and interpret the importance of a residual unless you've measured how much comes out, plus the residual, added the two together, and done a fraction of the residual over the functional capacity, which is the total. This, of course, was emphasized by another person who's made a huge contribution in the field, Paul Abrams, when he introduced the term LUTs, which initially was introduced to replace the concept of BPH, but is now a concept applied to both men and women, because at the end of the day, storage symptoms, or overactive bladder, are the most troublesome symptoms. In addition, we have voiding symptoms, and post-mixtrition symptoms. And indeed, Alan Wien present was one of, and Paul Abrams really came up with the concept of overactive bladder and have done a huge amount of work on the recognition of the importance of symptoms and that the fact that the bladder is an unreliable witness. Indeed, if you look at age match men and women, the prevalence of storage voiding and post-mixtrition symptoms is very similar. Clearly, women don't have prostates and men don't have vaginas and the same problem with prolapse. But clearly, the pathophysiology is different, but the symptoms are universal. So overactive bladder is an empirical diagnosis. It is not a term where you can diagnose somebody. It, it implies that there are significant storage symptoms. A number of years ago, I suggested this, which was just a modification of what the doyens in the field had come up with, was that if you've got a driving sensory symptom, this leads to reduced interval, void interval, and in a third of women, if you don't make it in time, you have incontinence, OEB wet. If it's doing the same at night time, it produces sleep-disturbing voiding, or nocturia, and as we'll hear later from Alan Wien, I think, nocturia can be either due to increased fluid production, or it can be due to just frequency per se. Of course, if you go more often, you void less each time you go. And if you look at overactive bladder, because of the increasing prevalence of symptoms with the male, of course OEB wet is very uncommon in men because we have a good bladder neck, a distal sphincter and a prostate, but nevertheless storage symptoms, OEB dry, are more common in age-matched men than women. So urgency is a sensation. It's difficult to define and explain to others, but it's rather like key in the door syndrome, which I'm sure most of us have experienced after a fluid load getting home, not able to get the key in the door. That is urgency. And as you get older, many of us find that urgency becomes more of a reality than it used to be when we were younger. Of course, we don't understand the sensory innovation of the urinary tract, and we don't fully understand the difference between these sensory factors. So there is overlap between bladder pain syndrome, painful bladder syndrome, and overactive bladder. In bladder pain syndrome, you've got pain as more of a feature, and in overactive bladder, you've got urgency or compelling desire to pass urine. And of course, you also have other neurological-related factors leading on to changes in neurotransmitters, and for instance, the common one in men is erectile dysfunction related to lonely tract symptoms, because as you can see, if you meld this holistically, 
we shouldn't be just talking about OAB as a female problem or a specific problem in men, but it merges into OAB in men, which is the same as the, the tire heart rings. So in other words, you have lonely tract symptoms, you have storage, voiding, and post-mictrogen symptoms, and I think the so-called BPH algorithm is useful because it emphasizes that around every bladder or every prostate, there is a human being who may have an enlargement in the male of the prostate, who may have detrusive overactivity, who may have blood outlet obstruction, who may in fact have many other factors, cardiovascular, renal, neurological, and so on. And there's no doubt neurological factors, often not diagnosed during life, will lead on to many of these symptoms. Don't forget, many years ago, in the Journal of Urology from the States, there was an excellent publication from Chalfin and Bradley where you injected lidocaine into men with prostate obstruction into the prostate, and that abolished detrusive overactivity. And when you do a prostatectomy, what's the first thing you do? You produce a deaffrontation of the lonely tract. You cut out the urethelium in the prostate. Don't forget the urethelium in the urinary tract has a metabolic rate four times that of the detrusor muscle. It's a urethelium that is the target in the suburethelial plexus for all of our current therapies. And so when you're thinking of any patient, you have to think holistically about all of the other processes going on. And of course, metabolic syndrome is a fa significant risk factor for lonely tract symptoms in both men and women. I don't need to tell you that in North America. It's an increasing problem in my country, which you might call the McDonald syndrome. Kentucky Fried Chicken Syndrome or whatever else. And this leads on to significant factors which affect the innovation of the lonely tract. So at the end of the day, whether you like terminology or not, you need to think what the terminology means. A word means what it means, no more, no less. It makes you feel comfortable, but it may not actually, it may mask the underlying problem. So that's what you need to consider. So the strength of any terminology it's, it's easy to understand for patients and primary care staff, but for specialists like us in the field, it's very important to dive behind it. Are there two types of afferent dysfunction when there's painful bladder or where there's OEB? Probably, and the subtleties of that still aren't understood. Urodynamics needs to be carried out properly by somebody who knows what they're doing, who takes a history, and who then equates what they find urodynamically with the patient's symptoms during the study. That's the first urodynamic equipment in the world from the Middlesex Hospital in 1967. We've moved on from there in terms of our recognition. And of course, video urodynamics was first coined, nothing to do with video machines, because video is from the Latin to see. So you looked at the anatomy on imaging at the same time that you measured the actual pressures. So that's the principle. So what are we actually talking about from a functional standpoint, we always need to ask ourselves, what are we measuring from a urodynamic assessment? So we have overactive bladder symptom complex, which is the storage symptoms affecting men and women, and you've got detrusor overactivity, which can be related to known neurological disease, or could be idiopathic, because you haven't identified a neurological pathology, but which is likely to be present in many of these cases. Here's some work from Bristol, for instance, and you can see, if you look at women with overactive bladder, if they're dry, 40% of them have detrusive overactivity. And if they're wet, only 60% have detrusive overactivity. So clearly, bladder overactivity, urodynamically, and overactive bladder symptom complex are not the same thing in 40 to 60% of women. 
In men, if men have overactive bladder symptoms and are incontinent, then 90% of them will have detrusive overactivity. That stands to reason, doesn't it? You've got a bladder neck, you've got a prostate, you've got a sphincter. If you overcome those mechanisms, you're likely to be have, having pressure rises. And so certainly, we need to think about the definitions. Are we talking about a symptomatic patient? Are we talking about urodynamics? Ambulatory urodynamics is a research tool. It's not really relevant to clinical practice, I'm afraid to say, because it, it doesn't actually, it's never been standardized, and around 70% of normal people, asymptomatic, have, uh, over, have rises in pressure if you do ambulatory urodynamics. So if you want to make yourself feel comfortable, you can do ambulatory urodynamics to prove somebody who's got storage symptoms has pressure rises, but it's really more making the clinician comfortable. There's no doubt that the detrusor muscle contracts in the primate under the influence of acetylcholine. Most small furry mammals have a 40 to 60% non-cholinergic component because of territorial marking which in Sheffield is uncommon in the male population except on a Friday evening after the pub shut. So at the end of the day, you always have to realize what animals you're studying. That's why pigs were, were used, because pigs have a much closer innovation of the bladder uh, to humans, I'm afraid to say. There's no doubt that acetylcholine released onto the detrusor muscle makes it contract, but it's far more complicated than that. It's taken us 100 years after the gut to realize that the interstitial cells of Cajal are actually mimicked by interstitial cells in the human bladder. And I was always amazed by a paper that came out a few years ago trying to grow the bladder. When we, didn't, we don't actually still know what the normal anatomy and innovation of the human bladder is, so how on earth can you bioengineer it? We do know that in the urethelium, there is non-neuronal release of neurotransmitters. An example, nitric oxide is a very potent smooth muscle relaxant in physiology. It is released when you stretch the urethelium in a non-neuronal fashion. When you see clot retention, you're not actually usually seeing somebody in retention, you're seeing somebody with blood in their bladder with huge spasm. And there is an animal model using oxyhemoglobin to produce marked spasm in the bladder. So when you have clot retention, it's scavenging nitric oxide, you wash it out, the patient's better. That's an example. I'll come on to that in more detail. So no doubt the antimuscarinics cause major side effects, and we use them. But in fact, if you look at data, half of the effect of an antimuscarinic in the bladder is on the effect of acetylcholine, released non-neuronally from, from the urethelium, are acting on the interstitial cells, which are cholinergic-dependent. And there's work on that which I'll show you. So certainly, detrusor overactivity is an important urodynamic diagnosis, but not the same as overactive bladder. And indeed, it's not new in the literature. Going back, this, as you can see, to 2009, clearly demonstrated that the target of a therapy is the afferent system. The next point is that there is close relationship between the rectum and the bladder in terms of innovation. And we certainly know both clinically and in animal studies, if you do something to the bladder, it makes the rectum overactive, you do something to the rectum, it makes the bladder overactive. That's been clearly demonstrated. We know that from personal experience, and we see that in clinical practice. Coolsit many years ago, which Drake has then developed, came up with the recognition that there may be 
intrinsic contractions in the bladder, but the problem with this whole idea is it's all based on taking an isolated guinea pig bladder, which is hardly a normal physiological situation. So if you look at the human bladder, what you've got is a urothelium with a metabolic rate four times that the traducer muscle. That urothelium releases as it stretches various compounds, acetylcholine, uh, nitric oxide, ATP, and those neurotransmitters act in a feedback mechanism rather than the white line, like the white line in flare, which we heard about in physiology. You've got interstitial cells that go throughout the whole system. And indeed, as an example, going back to the work of Margie with capsaicin and more recently work with ricinifratoxin, these are agents which are millions of times more potent than the most potent chilies that we would have if we liked a nice Mexican or curry. And we know that these come from natural constituents. What they do, if you put, for instance, capsaicin into the human bladder, it produces explosive degranulation of these sensory nerves. It's a neurotoxin, and the patient goes into retention for six months. No effect on the detrusor muscle, so that proves the effect of the sensory mechanism in normal bladder function. Racinifotoxin is less potent than that, and that's something which is try they're trying to develop, but there are a number of technical issues. The detrusor muscle is clearly important from the Latin to drive out, detridari. It's a thing that makes the bladder work. Don't get me wrong. And of course, the clockwork area, the submucosal space, is a target for botulinum toxin, for mirabegron, for anticholinergics, and so on. So if the concept is that it's acting on the detrusor muscle, which is what people often sell with Botox, with antimuscarinics, they're wrong. That is a negative effect of these treatments because urgency is a sensory symptom. And of course, this has now been embellished with more recent data, and it's clearly demonstrated from a number of workers in the field. And you can see here the sensory nerves and the work, as you can see here, from people like Laurie Burder, clearly demonstrating the importance of this system. So what you've got is feedback loops with the urethelium, the suburethelial plexus, and the detrusor muscle is a pump but at the end of the day, these interstitial cells, and this is work from Karen McCloskey in Belfast, clearly have got those are cholinergic receptors on the interstitial cells. So an antimuscarinic is working at that level too, modulating the behavior of the bladder, modulating the sensory mechanisms. So yes, if you give enough anticholinergic, you'll put somebody into retention. Atropine does that very clearly. But is that the therapeutic effect? Is that what's actually reducing urgency? No. It is the effect on the sensory mechanisms that is important. So the controversy is, are we limited just to focus on the periphery? Of course we are. You've got to think about the CNS. So starting peripherally, of course, impulses from your brains will be going up the periaqueductal gray matter, reaching the limbic system, and that's why strokes, dementia, anything affecting the cognition will have an effect on control of bladder behavior. Because all the time you're sitting there, unconsciously, those impulses are going up to the brain, and your central nervous system is producing unconscious inhibition of the pontine mictrician center, which is trying to make the bladder contract. Release that, and the bladder contracts at a socially convenient time, hopefully, and empties the bladder. So that's what we're trying to target. But the trouble is that we're trying to do something centrally. We can show the link, remember studies such as this with MRI 
are very difficult because trying to avoid lying flat in an MRI machine is hardly physiological. But nevertheless, you can show a clear correlation. You can see this work from Griffiths and others demonstrating a correlation between urgency and areas in the brain lighting up. So what is the target for therapy? Is it the central nervous system? Is it the trusor muscle? Hopefully, I've, I've suggested to you that the trusor muscle isn't the target. Is it the urethelium or the interstitial cells? And of course, the trouble with the CNS, the side effects, duloxetine. When I've used it clinically, you get patients with anorgasmia, anorexia, nausea. They want to kill you when you, they come and see you, young ladies who you put it on, unless they're depressed. Obviously, targeting mucosal signaling is important. And in that context, you've got the urethelium, the subureutherial plexus, the afferent nerves, and the interstitial cells. And their botulinum toxin seems to be very effective. Don't forget, with botulinum toxin, if you look at Roger Domikowski's phase two study, when they looked at it, you got a dose-response curve. 150 units, remember it's mouse units, not international units. A mouse unit is the LD50 for mice, by the way. But happily, they now have a, a laboratory-based study which doesn't sacrifice mice. But 150 units is the optimum. The company went for 100 for AB to minimize the effect on retention. As they went up to 200 units, 300 units, there was no greater efficacy. There was just more retention. And that is more evidence that it's a sensory mechanism. That's why Botox works on migraine, hyperhidrosis. You may say, OK, it works on spasm. It works on spasm by breaking the afferent loop if you speak to neurologists, not by paralyzing the striated muscle. So certainly what we're talking about here is acting on this feedback in the interstitial area. And of course, I've already mentioned the non-neuronal release. So if you're looking at myocyte signaling, beta-3 agonists can affect that because they're acting on these sensory mechanisms, and Botox does as well. I already mentioned that none of the animal studies and literature, I'll give you a prize if you can tell me one compound in OAB that has ever come out of any animal work. None of it has ever led to clinical development because we can't model what is really an age-dependent, long-lasting condition affecting the aging population. I'm sure that you know uh, Emil Tanago, and that's Rick Schmidt. Rick Schmidt was there at the inception of, say, of sacral neuromodulation, and he is also the gentleman who, when he was in Denver, took out the patent in Denver on botulinum toxin, and Denver University does rather well out of it. We do know that if you look at botulinum toxin, it affects histochemically the various sensory nerves I've mentioned, and work from our group showed very clearly using an intact animal model that you knock down very rapidly the sensory signaling. It's all presumptive evidence to support what I've said. If you look at the beta-3, that came out of work from Yamaguchi, looking at the prevalence of a gene abnormality, but it was, as I said to you, a failed compound for, uh, for dietary loss, weight loss. And there's worse recent work from Megawa showing very clearly it's acting on the uh, sensory nerves, both A-delta and C-fibers. Biomarkers, always very trendy. People love to have trendy new things. There is no biomarker for OAB. How can there be for a non-specific sensory mechanism? There was a lot of work with NGF a few years ago until the Astellas Corporation spent $10 million on a shrink study 
and found that there wasn't any NGF in the bladder, in the urine, and that everybody had been using an assay which wasn't designed for urine. Bladder wall thickness worked, uh, they were looking at, but again, if not everybody has got an overactive bladder, Dutroux's overactivity, they were finding one to two millimeters difference on bladder wall thickness with a huge inter-observer inter error. A failed study which was taught us something. The biomarkers you need are the ones you can measure. Incontinence, the bladder diary, the patient's symptoms. Sure, get into the fancy new uh, molecular markers and so on, but don't always believe what you read. I often feel a bit like this, so, but we're all learning, so thank you very much. Good morning. Can I have my first slide, please? So <clears throat> it's my privilege today to just to talk to you about overactive bladder management with just oral agents. That's what we'll cover. This is me. That's my potential conflicts of interest, which are also in the AUA book. And basically, let's start really simply, because as you probably know, I like to simplify stuff. So what are the potential management strategies for overactive bladder or detrusor overactivity? can decrease activation on the motor or the sensory or both sides of the micturition cycle, which is really what we're talking about here. You can decrease residual urine and thereby increase functional bladder capacity. You can decrease urine volume and thereby increase the time to activation. And you can also treat associated or causative factors, which sometimes we forget, like bladder outlet obstruction, significant prolapse, stress incontinence, which are often associated uh, with overactive bladder or urgency incontinence. So as Eric alluded to, what the ideal drug for overactive bladder would do is A, block urgency, which is the cardinal symptom, block detrusor overactivity where it exists, because you don't always find it, have no effect on voluntary voiding, have minimal adverse events, annoying adverse events, and essentially no safety issues. So as he also mentioned, the ultimate treatment goal is symptom relief, and obviously if you had your wishes, it would be symptom resolution, but that generally is not the case. So as Eric emphasized as well, a realistic goal is symptom improvement, not cure, and the patient expectations really need to be realistic. Now, in putting this together, I've used the two most recent references on the drugs. One is this book, Incontinence, which is a product of the International Consultation on Incontinence, which happens every three years or so. There's a pharmacologic committee. The committee addresses basically everything related to incontinence and overactive bladder and rates them according to the Oxford system. And I've used the EAU guidelines from 2018 because they're the most recent. As, you can, as you'll see, there's not a lot of difference between the EAU guidelines and the AUA guidelines, but it is revised somewhat every year, major re revision every three years. And the thing I like about the EAU guidelines is that they're basically not afraid to call a spade a spade. I mean, they if basically they feel something very strongly, and you'll see they make some rather strong statements, you know, they're basically not afraid to say it. So let's start with the antimuscarinics. So the rationale for the use of antimuscarinics, as Chris alluded to, 
is that in low doses, they affect mostly the afferent system. So basically, what you're talking about is you're talking about a sensory effect, and it's only with the really higher doses that you affect voiding contraction. And this is just an example of how basically the antimuscarinics can affect impulses in both the A-delta fibers and in the C fibers, so they really affect the afferent system. In the usual doses, they don't affect emptying. In the higher doses, they can re produce retention. And in the overactive bladder patient in whom retention is not a goal, i.e. the non-neurologic patient, they act during filling and storage and not emptying. So what are the metrics we use to measure efficacy in patients that have overactive bladder? Well, frequency, volume voided, urgency, either episodes or severity, urgency incontinence episodes, nocturia, quality of life, you know, those are all possible. Now, the International Consultation on Incontinence, the Pharmacologic Committee, gave a 1A rating to basically all of these compounds. And as Chris alluded to, oxybutynin and propivirine are not pure antimuscarinics in the laboratory at least, they have a calcium blockade action, but clinically, they're basically antimuscarinics. So what does 1A mean? Well, 1A means they have a documented beneficial effect, and they have an acceptable side effect profile for overactive bladder and detrusor overactivity. So basically, here they are in no particular order. Now, if you summarize the results of antimuscarinics, in both men and women, in all the articles that have ever been written, this is usually what you get. Now, these are median values. Median values are always different from mean values. The FDA uses mean values, which are always lower. Most companies, when they do overactive bladder drug trials, they use median values because the results are not bell-shaped and also because, honestly, the median values are higher. So you can expect urgency urinary incontinence reduction anywhere from 55 to 80 percent with a placebo effect of 35 to 40 percent. You can expect urgency reduction in the neighborhood of 30 to 50 percent. That's episodes with a placebo of 15 to 25 percent. You can expect frequency reduction 15 to 20 percent with a placebo of 10 to 12 percent and I've never seen a quality of life index that failed to improve. The adverse events of antimuscarinics, and again, these are not things that cause people to discontinue the medication, they're just adverse events, which can either be mild, moderate, or severe, and again, if you go through the literature, this is what you'll find. There was a big flap a few years ago about whether they affected cardiac function, I think the conclusion that everybody agrees on is not in clinical doses, and there's still some discussion about cognitive effects. The only one that's been demonstrated or said by various bodies to affect cognitive function on an acute basis is oxybutynin and immediate release. So as was mentioned a couple years ago, there was an article in JAMA Neurology, and this was basically the quote. Uh, the use of anticholinergic medication was associated with brain atrophy and dysfunction, clinical defined. So the question was, you know, were antimuscarinics dead? 
this seems to have ebbed over the last few years, but it does remain a matter of concern, especially in the elderly. Um, just the day I came to the meeting, I read another report, and it was in JAMA Neurology that looked at long-term effects uh, of antimuscarinics, and basically I think that over the next few months you'll see the controversy is going to start again. Uh, same argument that on a long-term basis, long-term usage, it does affect cognitive function and it predisposes to dementia and perhaps Alzheimer's disease. So these are the recommendations for antimuscarinics from the EAU. Offer them to adults with urgency urinary incontinence who have failed conservative treatment, that is behavioral modification. Consider extended release forms rather than immediately release whenever possible. If your initial treatment's ineffective, either raise the dose or you can add another antimuscarinic or mirabegron, which we'll mention shortly. And you should evaluate your treatment probably at about four weeks, weeks in terms of efficacy and side effects. These are the EAU recommendations uh, for 2018. So pay attention to the first one. And I think pay attention to the last one as well that dose escalation of antimuscarinics in selected patients can improve treatment, although with a higher dose, you can expect higher rates of adverse events. So this was a statement by the EAU out front. There's no consistent evidence that one antimuscarinic is superior to another. The efficacy is pretty similar, and I think, you know, basically what you see is various marketing strategies and comparison, you know, compare our best stuff to your worst stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And I think what you use basically is re it revolves around your perceived tolerability and efficacy of the individual compounds. And I think no one can ever criticize you for using one over the other. So it's interesting, if you take the FDA approval information, in other words, the information that was submitted to the FDA for original approval for use in the U.S. of a few drugs, you know, let me just show you what happens. The FDA allows frequency, they allow incontinence episodes, they don't allow urgency, they allow volume voided, and they use means and not medians. So let's take as an example solifenacin and fesoteridine. Now, this is kind of interesting. This is an article from Bristol that says, you know, when we're looking at these drugs, instead of just listing the number of decreases in urgency incontinence episodes, et cetera, you know, why don't we use an estimate that can be interpreted relative to baseline and express it as a percentage decrease? And then we can compare the percentage decrease of the drug to the percentage decrease of the placebo. So when you do that, you know, this is what happens with mean values. If you look at solifenacin and you look at placebo, if you look at urgency incontinence episodes decrease, you see the results are pretty consistent and there's actually not much difference between the five milligram and the 10 milligram. And the ratio is about the same uh, in with respect to drug versus placebo. And if you look at fesoteridine, you know, the other more recently on the market drug that has an escalatable dose, again, you see that the results are really pretty similar. If you look at urinary frequency, um, again, less of an improvement, but drug placebo ratio is up here. You still get a placebo effect with both solifenacin and fesoteridine. And if you look at the results, they're really 
not that much different. You know, they're sort of scrambled. The, the two columns basically I mean this is one. This is one set of phase three studies. This is another, and it's just a way to compare and see what the variance is in various studies. And this is the increase in volume voided for the two doses of both solifenacin and fesoterides. And so you see that there's really not much difference between the two. And in fact, if you make a drug placebo ratio based on those numbers, this is what you get. Solifenacin 5 versus placebo in basically three trials, one of which only used the 10 milligram dose, and FESO 4 and 8 versus placebo. And as you can see, that's sort of what you're going to expect. And if you average those two, there's not a lot of difference. And we'll talk about Mirabegron shortly. And this is the decrease in frequency episodes. And again, you know, what you see is pretty much the same. Now, Chris showed this slide. These are the number of patients that you have to treat in the various studies, which are usually 12 weeks, to cure. Now, cure in these studies means no incontinence episodes for three days. And so these are the number needed to treat, or the NNT, to really achieve a cure with each of these medications. And this is, was basically in the EAU guidelines for this year. What about the elderly? They're really a special class, so everything's in red. Antimuscarinic drugs are effective. Mirabegron, which we'll talk about, is also effective. The cognitive effect of drugs is cumulative and increases with the length of exposure. Oxybutynin may worsen cognitive function. And basically, these agents, at the time the guidelines were written, hadn't been shown to cause cognitive dysfunction in the elderly in short-term studies. So the recommendations, try behavioral modification first or non-pharmacologic treatments. That was actually from 2017. It's not in the 2018 guidelines. Long-term antimuscarinics should be used with caution in the elderly, especially those people that have cognitive dysfunction already when prescribing these. Um, basically, you should consider the total antimuscarinic load and consider the use of Mirabegron in elderly patients if an additional antimuscarinic load uh, is to be avoided. What about antimuscarinics in men? You know, we used to be told don't do that uh, and don't do it if bladder outlet obstruction is already present or if retention is a risk. So these are from the EAU. Antimuscarinics can significantly improve overactive bladder symptomatology. This is level of evidence two. They can be associated with some increase in residual, but urinary retention is really rare if your starting residual was less than 150 mLs. If you combine antimuscarinics with an alpha-1 blocker, you'll get a better effect than if you use either an alpha blocker or a placebo alone. So the recommendations, use antimuscarinic medications in men who have moderate to severe lower urinary tract storage symptoms, use combination symptoms or combination treatment with an alpha blocker if the relief of the storage symptoms has been insufficient or you can combine it with another antimuscarinic. Don't use them in men that have a post-void residual of over 150 mLs. What about behavioral therapy? Well, I think that any talk would be deficient if it didn't mention all the arms of behavioral modification and if it didn't mention 
this particular study, and this has been repeated many times, that if you use drug and behavioral therapy together, that you'll get a better result than using either one alone. And this is the original diagram from that. You can see drug added to behavioral modification, and you can see behavioral modification added to drug therapy. So the bottom line is always use them together. Well, unfortunately, people don't stay on antimuscarinics very long. And most of these persistent studies have been carried out in non-neurogenic uh, patients, not neurogenic patients, so this may not apply to them. But if you look at the number of people who have done this, I mean, it's pretty dismal, you know, 20 to 30% at 12 months. Well, you know, is it bad for all drugs? Well, no, it's not. As you can see, overactive bladder medications have the highest non-persistent rate of any of these particular agents used to treat various things. What does that do to? Well, as you can assume, low efficacy, adverse events, and in some cases, cost. Intermediate release preparations get discontinued quicker than a extended release. There's a lower persistent among young adults. They're less tolerant of the drug not working. People that have unrealistic expectation of treatments. The abandonment rate is higher in women, and for some reason, minorities are more apt to discontinue or switch. So what about neurogenics? Well, antimuscarinics have long been the first-line choice for treating neurogenic detrusor overactivity. You can use high doses. These are the antimuscarinics that are always mentioned. Uh, this is in the most recent EAU guidelines that as far as fesoteridine is concerned, there's no published ev evidence that's really compelling of its use in neurologic disorders. And this is an example of what you can get in the neurogenic detrusor overactivity just with solifenacin. And as you can see, you get a really pretty good increase in terms of maximal systematic capacity. This is basically before and this is after in terms of incontinence episodes before and after and in terms of voided volume uh, or the volume at first involuntary bladder contraction uh, before and after. So the recommendations for neurogenic, long-term efficacy and safety of antimuscarinics well-documented. Consider a combination of antimuscarinics. And the use of antimuscarinics is recommended as first-line therapy for neurogenic detrusor overactivity. What about the beta-3 agonists? Well, basically this is the, they, they do have in vitro or direct relaxing effect on smooth muscle. The same sort of afferent inhibition has been suggested as well, and more recently, they've been shown to probably decrease prejunctionally the amount of acetylcholine released from cholinergic terminals. So if we do the same thing with the information provided to the FDA, let's say on Mirabegron, because it's the only beta-3 agonist that we have at the moment, as you can see, these are three studies that are presented uh, 25 and 50 milligrams versus placebo in terms of the incontinence episodes for 24 hours. Uh, the change from baseline, as you can see, and now using the medians, it doesn't look quite as good as the antimuscarinics, does it? And the number of micturitions for 24 hours, uh, basically in red on the bottom again, and the volume voided doesn't look as good as the antimuscarinics. 
This is a big review article that was done on effects of mirabegron, looking at the number of urgency episodes. This is the placebo over here, and these are the basic percentage reductions. The number of urgency incontinence episodes, the mean volume voided per micturition, so this is what you can expect, and the mean level of urgency, which as I said, the FDA doesn't accept as a parameter um, in this country. The great thing about Mirabegron, which I think everyone is familiar with, minimal adverse events, minimal adverse events in comparison to placebo. How many people here have actually seen a bad adverse event with Mirabegron? Yeah, so nobody is raising their hands. So the EAU guidelines about the beta-3 agonist, Mirabegron is better than placebo. It's as effective as anti-muscarinics. I'm not quite sure that that's true. Adverse events are similar to placebo. Patients inadequately treated with a low dose of solifenacin can benefit from the addition of mirabegron, perhaps as well as or maybe better than the escalation of a solifenacin dose. So the recommendation is to offer this to patients with urgency incontinence who have failed conservative therapy. It gets a 1A recommendation um, in the, by the ICI as well. In men, significant efficacy in treating overactive bladder symptoms. So the recommendation used in patients with moderate to severe lower urinary tract symptoms who have mainly storage symptoms. And obviously this is only for Mirabegron because it's the only one available. In the elderly, use Mirabegron because it's efficacious and safe in elderly patients. Consider the total anti-muscarinic load so in other words, it's a pretty safe medication for the elderly. Consider the use of mirabegron in addition to an, an anti-muscarinic if the anti-muscarinic fails rather than increasing the dose of the anti-muscarinic or adding an anti an, another anti-muscarinic. In terms of treating neurogenic patients, um, clinical experience in neurological patients is limited. There shouldn't be any reason why it acts differently in neurologic patients you know, than in non-neurologic patients. Is the efficacy comparable to the gold standard anti-muscarinics? Um, is there an additive effect or not? Well, again, this is the mirabetric data. If you look at the drug placebo ratio done with means, because that's what the FDA has, then if you look at the drug placebo ratios for solifenacin, fesoteridine, and then at Mirabegron, you know, you can see that it is slightly less than the anti-muscarinics. It's not to say that it's not a good drug, but I think that this is a fair way to compare things. This is the decrease in frequency episodes, drug to placebo. What about combining anti-muscarinics and beta-3s, which Chris is going to talk about? Well, the hypothesis is that since they have different modes of action, that you should be able to get at least an additive effect, not a synergistic effect, which is one plus one equals three, but maybe one plus one equals two by combining the two. The persistence with Mirabegron, which is the top line, seems to be better than the anti-muscarinics. Why is that? Well, I think it's probably because it has fewer side effects. Mixed urinary incontinence treats the most bothersome symptom first. So if it's stress incontinence, treat that. If it's urgent, urgency incontinence, treat that. And offer anti-muscarinic drugs or beta-3s 
to patients that have urgency predominant mixed incontinence. What about the alpha-1 antagonists? Well, basically in men, there's no evidence that the alpha-1 antagonists are effective in patients that have storage symptoms only. So that's from the ICI guidelines from 2017. They're ineffective in women according to the pharmacologic treatments. And basically the only time that they seem to be effective is in men with both storage and voiding symptoms, but not in men with storage symptoms alone. And these are the ratings in the ICI, a 3C rating means that, well, yeah, maybe it does work with that exclusion, and these are basically for all uh, the, alpha, the alpha blockers. So the alpha blockers, as you know, they typically reduce the AUA symptom score, the IPSS, by 30 to 40 percent. They increase the flow rate a bit. The placebo arms also show considerable improvement. Basically, the vasodilating effects are most prominent with doxazosin and terazosin, less with alfuzosin and tamsulosin. The, I think everyone knows about the intraoperative floppy iris syndrome for cataract surgery. It seems to be higher with tamsulosin. Retrograde or decreased ejaculation seems to be more common with psilidosin and tamsulosin. The 5-alpha reductase inhibitors, well, the recommendation is use these in men with moderate to severe lower urinary tract symptoms who have an increased risk of progression. Pretty strong recommendation. The phosphodiesterase inhibitors, well, these are basically smooth muscle relaxants. We're talking about mostly phosphodiesterase inhibitor 5. These are the mechanisms, smooth muscle relaxation, probably an increase in oxygenation, and moderate sensory function as well. The phosphodiesterase inhibitors improve the IPSS, AUA symptom scores, and the erection score, but not the flow rate. So the question is, why do they work? Well, they seem to work, and the recommendation to the EAU is to use these in patients that have moderate to severe lower urinary tract symptoms with or without erectile dysfunction. And as you know, Tadalafil is approved in the U.S. for that, although there's no reason why the other phosphodiesterase inhibitors really shouldn't work. And in fact, the others were given a 1B recommendation as well as sildenafil by the EAU. I think everyone is familiar with the adverse events of the phosphodiesterase inhibitors. And I think everyone is familiar with the contraindications for using the PDE inhibitors and the phosphodiesterase inhibitors, some anecdotal trials in women, but not very much. Estrogen for lower urinary tract symptoms and overactive bladder and DO, a 2C recommendation by the International Consultation on Incontinence for stress incontinence, basically um, a 2D recommendation meaning really not recommended for that. In the Cochrane meta-analysis, they felt that there was less frequency and urgency in those women treated with vaginal estrogen, not oral estrogen, obviously because systemic estrogen actually made incontinence worse, both stress incontinence and urgency incontinence. So the guidelines from the EAU offer long-term vaginal estrogen to postmenopausal women 
with the postmenopausal syndrome, urinary incontinence, and symptoms of vulvovaginal atrophy. And just some further tidbits from the EAU guidelines that may or may not be surprising to you. Reducing caffeine doesn't improve urinary incontinence. There's conflicting evidence on whether fluid modification improves urinary incontinence. Non-surgical weight loss does improve urinary incontinence. Surgical weight loss does improve urinary incontinence. Prompted voiding is useful in caring for the elderly who are dependent on other people for care. And there's no evidence that smoking cessation improves symptoms of incontinence. Thank you. Right, thank you. Uh, so, really following on from that tour de force, I'm just going to highlight the points. And as already mentioned by Alan Wien, I think what you're trying to do effectively is you're trying to, uh, when you're dealing with symptoms, to counteract the inevitable natural history of these conditions leading on to lonely tract symptoms. But of course, at the end of the day, the other side of the coin is the consequences of pharmacotherapy in terms of adverse events. And that's the basis for using combination therapy. In other words, to try and reduce the side effects by using different mechanisms of action which augment in an additive fashion. Obviously, the holy grail is synergism, but it's not something that you usually see. Now, obviously, we've just very briefly, you've already seen comments on desipressin, estrogen, testosterone. And of course, the use of an antidiuretic, you heard, desipressin can be effective. The principle is, as you'll hear more, nocturia it can be subdivided into 24-hour production of urine increased or nocturnal polyuria. And there's been recent developments. Desipressin in the elderly and in younger patients more recently has been promoted. Remember, women are more susceptible to the use of desipressin because of renal physiology. And estrogen therapy, as we've heard already, can be effective for urgency. It does not, of course, improve stress incontinence. And of course, it does improve when used uh, vaginally sexual function by increasing lubrication. Testosterone, there's limited data, but there's a lot of enthusiasm for the use of this at present. And there may be also benefits using an adjunct type approach for stress incontinence, which is l new developments in the field. Obviously, the, we, we have uh, data that's coming out, but many of these treatments still need to be validated. So the main uh, emphasis of this talk is combination therapy. The principle is by adding together different agents, you get a greater efficacy. We've already heard that, of course, the beta-3 agonists and the anti-muscarinic act by different mechanisms. I'm just very briefly going to go through the data. This was two weeks ago, approved in principle, I believe, by the FDA. And they also were very positive about the trials that were carried out, which is unusual from a regulatory authority in terms of what they perceived to be the benefit. The principle was that by adding together an anti-muscarinic and a beta-3, you could potentially at least achieve the same effect as a higher dose of anti-muscarinic, but with less anticholinergic burden and less anticholinergic side effects. A number of studies are being carried out. You can see that these are the Symphony, the Synergy, the Beside, and the Milani study. Just looking at it in detail, I'm sorry, I don't want to bore you with the, the, the rhetoric on it, but certainly the studies have been conducted uh, to the usual high standard that you need for the regulatory authorities. And you can see from the first study, looking at it, there was a 12-week treatment period, 
and they was using a combination of solifenacin and mirabegron to try and uh, look at the benefit. And there certainly seemed to be a signal here. This is a typical sort of phase two um, A design to try and look at wh where one was going. And this demonstrated on all the usual parameters a potential benefit by combination therapy. The three most common reported drug-related events were dry mouth, hypertension, constipation. The hypertension was only a matter of a few millimeters and did not appear to be specifically related to the use of a beta-3. As you know, beta-3 has often been suggested to carry a risk of hypertension, but that's thought to be in uncontrolled hypertension. Looking at a recent paper, looking at 8 million patients treated in real-life clinical practice, there was no signal there. And the effects on QT interval and so on with a beta-3 are less than seen with some anti-muscarinics. There's no clear dose-related trend to, between combination and monotherapy in terms of any effect on cardiovascular uh, parameters such as pulse, blood pressure, QT interval. And so certainly by dose combination, you're achieving the benefit of two different therapeutic modalities and hopefully reducing side effects. And this was the principle. Now, obviously, it's very important when you're looking at data to try and analyze it. And in this context, something which is often used in the industry is looking at decision tree analysis. This is somebody that uh, the, from the, the London School of Economics won a Nobel Prize for a number of years ago. And it's by actually looking at efficacy and tolerability and then using an independent panel to actually rate the relative importance of these different parameters, then feeding the, the data in, you can then get, if you like, it's a crude form of artificial intelligence. So a group of people will feed in what they believe to be the important rating of efficacy and tolerability, and then you get out at the end of the day uh, relative weighting, which you can then apply. And using that, you can see that there was clear evidence supporting the principle of combination for the reasons mentioned. In many ways, you could say, oh, that's just stating the obvious, but that was applied to this phase two study to show that probably the, the combination that you were looking for was the one that should be taken forwards. In other words, looking at uh, combining uh, five milligrams of solifenacin with meribegron. Now, in the United States, as you know, it's recommended you should use 25 milligrams to dose triting up to 50 milligrams. In the rest, most of the rest of the world, we don't bother with the 25 milligram uh, titration, as there's been no evidence to suggest that's necessary, except in patients with uh, hepatic dysfunction or renal dysfunction. But that was because of concerns by the FDA over safety. Uh, I was on the panel which actually discussed that and debated that. And certainly the design here you can see is to look at the combination. And adding mirabegron to solifenacin 5 milligrams seemed to produce a benefit. Now you can query the significance of that, but in real life clinical practice it seems to have been borne out. And certainly when you're looking at pool data like this, it doesn't look very attractive when you're talking about a 0.3 difference. But you can see it is more slightly better than using a higher dose of solifenacin with clearly less side effects. And that, again, if you look at micturition, is the same uh, in incontinence episodes. And then, of course, the holy grail is to try and show superiority, which they did not demonstrate. They showed non-inferiority. And if looking at micturition frequency uh, and the other parameters you can see and patient-reported outcome measures, there was benefit. So at the end of the day, 
the, the, the devil is in the detail, and there's huge detail in these slides for which I must apologize. But to look at the bullet points, the, the point is that you actually do Im improve patients' um, patient's perception of the outcome. But you do not increase the adverse event profile significantly. There's a very low incidence of retention. The dry mouth, tachycardia, and so on, you can see uh, effect is very um, similar, but there's less, there's less anticholinergic side effects. So in terms of treatment on pulse rate and so on, there was no clear benefit using uh, the, the forest plot type approach. And the same went for blood pressure. So there didn't seem to be a signal that a beta-3 was dangerous in this context. The Malai study then used a similar design. And just basically, you can see here, looking at a, a lower dose of solifenacin, because this was looking at the, the market in the Far East, you can see that they showed that the benefit of combination was certainly visible even in that population with an add-on type approach. And again, you can see across the board, just to demonstrate to you the side effect profile. And again, adverse events, you can see here that it was the anticholinergic that drove the adverse events. So the conclusion is combination therapy in OEB is here to stay. It's now FDA approved. I think most people, and certainly in my practice, we tend to start, particularly in men, with a beta-3 and maybe add in an anticholinergic. It is debatable, depending on the regulatory or the, shall I say, the reimbursement strategy in your practice, whether the, re the reimbursement will follow. But in our practice, working in a nationalized health system, we tend to start more on the beta-3 now, although the, they would like us to use cheaper anticholinergics. And that seems to be the way things are going. Botulinum toxin, just to mention, uh, the, if you looked at the original patent, I flashed through it earlier, it was actually three out of the five cases were for patients, male patients, injection into the prostate. But interestingly, prostate injection just shows the danger of small studies. Uh, initially, it was suggested from Italy to be beneficial, but in fact, looking at two phase uh, three studies, botulinum toxin does not work when injected into the prostate, so there's no benefit there for a combination. Alpha blocker and 5-alpha reductase inhibitors you're well familiar with, but something which is not emphasized in the marketing publications or presentations is firstly that it's a very select group of patients who are often investigated with the larger prostates, and secondly, look at the effect of combination in terms of adverse events when you add in a, a, a combination of 5-alpha reductase and alpha blocker, up to one in five in the trials have significant adverse events. So always bear in mind that balance between efficacy, improvement, and adverse events. Remember, using a 5-alpha reductase, you're probably only preventing retention in around 3% of patients by adding that in over a five-year period, looking at the data, if you look at an unselected group of patients. Different if you look at an enriched population with large prostates. Alpha block and anti-muscarinic, we've already heard alluded to by Alan, and certainly the evidence is that there is benefit from that. He was one of the people who suggested that because 10 years ago it was a no-no to use an anticholinergic in men. But very clearly, if one looks at the evidence, alpha blockers uh, certainly combined with anti-muscarinics uh, are effective. He mentioned the residual of 150, and that's based on the voiding efficiency, which is around 40%. In other words, the residual of around 140, 150 versus the functional capacity 
that's avoiding efficiency of 40%. When you go beyond that, then you increase the risk of retention. So anti-musk rinks alone used in the male population. Uh, there's limited data. Again, you can see some efficacy, but this is a bad analysis because this is just drawing out subgroups from uh, the larger studies where the majority of patients, around 85% are female. Uh, if you're looking at alpha blocker and anti-muscular, therefore, the conclusions are that you can certainly use it. There have been a trial development program, and you can see here data from that and work from Europe, which has shown the tamsulosin combination with solifenosin. Again, a marketing initiative has shown very clearly that the combination is more beneficial than either alone. So again, that's now probably been superseded by the use of uh, the beta-3 agonist, uh, because most people would try a male patient on a beta-3 rather than going down the anti-muscarinic line. So certainly, combination therapy is here to stay. We've already seen this slide, if you're looking at the PD-5 inhibitors. In Europe, whenever you bring a new compound to market, you have to go against existing therapy. So the far right, you can see against tamsulosin. Tadalafil was slightly more effective than that. And I would suggest to you, as it comes off patent, that people will be using this uh, very commonly if the price comes down with generics rather than an alpha blocker because of the positive sexual uh, benefit of a PD-5. But again, again, side effects, as we already heard. And if you look at a meta-analysis of the literature, it's clear that a, a, a PD-5 possibly combined with an alpha blocker may be beneficial. And there is, there is some evidence that there, that may be, but it's very poor quality evidence with limited studies. 5-alpha reductase and PD-5 to overcome the adverse events of a 5-alpha reductase. Very small studies really needs to be looked at, unlikely to happen uh, in good quality studies because of the marketing and the fact these things are coming off patent. So we live in an age of combination where you have to look at the potential for looking at different mechanisms to try and add, reduce the adverse event profile, to optimize the efficacy, and to ring the changes. So whilst this may look rather flippant doing this, you can see that's where we are in 2018. We're already seeing that now with many of these agents, and it's a matter of uh, a hierarchy. Sort out the patient first. Find out what the problem is with the bladder diary, careful history. Don't forget the bladder diary. Don't just reach for the prescription pad, because you will often treat people inappropriately for the wrong with the wrong treatment unless you have the picture. It's tedious people find the bladder diary, but it's surprisingly useful, and it's also an important part of the placebo response in the trials. At the end of the day, what you're trying to do is to get a benefit for the patient. It's a tailored approach to the patient, also bearing in mind the other medical problems that they have, whether it's metabolic syndrome with diabetes, whether it's the obesity component, cardiovascular disease, which goes with that, and all of those factors need to be borne in mind because at the end of the day, as functional urologists, we are dealing with a medical problem, and it's important that we shouldn't just be technicians, but we should look at the medical aspects. It's been the strength of our specialty and will continue to be the strength of our specialty to look at this in both men and women as a global, uh, holistic approach to the management of this condition. Thank you. All right, I'm going to switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, Nocturia. The, uh, the, the reason this is included uh, in the 
talk is that uh, in the course is that obviously nocturia is uh, commonly associated uh, uh, with uh, overactive bladder uh, syndromes. So uh, without uh, discussing nocturia, we would be uh, we would uh, not be completely covering uh, the topic. So nocturia uh, is amongst, if not the most prevalent lower urinary tract symptom <clears throat> in both men and women. This is data from the Epilut study. Uh, uh, sponsored by a pharmaceutical company many years ago. Uh, but what is, uh, what is uh, noticeable is actually that nocturia becomes bothersome when it becomes more than two. So although the definition of nocturia uh, is uh, waking up one or more times uh, at night, uh, and, and uh, night is defined uh, by the time that you go to bed with the intent of going to sleep for the evening to the time that you wake up with the intent of being awake for the rest of the day, uh, nocturia is actually one or more times, but again, bothersomeness is, is two times. So nocturia can only come from a, a couple of different causes, and this is a very simplistic view, but a very useful view uh, when we're treating uh, nocturia. So uh, nocturia basically comes from either polyuria, uh, a bladder storage problem, overactive bladder, or nocturnal polyuria. And then the, the, the one that's not included, because it's not urological, is a primary sleep disorder, uh, and those folks uh, can be differentiated by asking them why they got up to go to the bathroom. Was it out of convenience because they happened to be awake, in which case it's really not a nocturnal episode uh, uh, or should not be classified as nocturia even though they're peeing, uh, or did they get up to go to the bathroom uh, primarily, in which case it probably is a nocturia episode. If you further break that down, those three categories, polyuria, polyuria can only come from a couple of different uh, causes. You drink too much, you have diabetes untreated uh, or diabetes insipidus. Bladder storage problems, as urologists, we're very familiar with it, and it's been the topic of this course, primarily overactive bladder, but a variety of other things that cause people to, to uh, wake up as a primary bladder storage problem. And then nocturnal polyuria, which will be uh, really the, the uh, topic uh, that we'll discuss for the next five minutes. Nocturnal polyuria, making too much urine at night, is present in the majority of patients with nocturia. I'm going to say that again. Nocturnal polyuria is present in the majority of patients uh, who have nocturia. And that, these are three separate studies from three different regions in the world, so it doesn't matter where you live, uh, but nocturnal polyuria is most common. The only way to diagnose and treat nocturia is with a diary, and I agree with, with uh, Dr. Wien and Dr. Chapel that sometimes it can be challenging to get your patients to complete a diary, but I urge you, in those patients with a primary complaint of nocturia, there is no other way to treat this condition other than by diagnosing it on a diary and being sure uh, or at least reassured that your patient indeed has nocturnal polyuria. And although that is present in the vast majority of patients, it's not present in everybody. And if it's not present, then some of the treatments that I will show you will not work, presumably, although there is some data to suggest that at least some people would respond anyway. So what is a diary? Uh, that's the diary I use. I'm happy to send it to you. If uh, you email me, I'll be happy to send it to you. Uh, I, I keep track of how much the patient voids, how much they drink, whether they have urgency, pain, uh, and incontinence. And we, uh, we use it to assess the uh, volume. And the nocturnal polyuria index is how we diagnose nocturnal polyuria. If the volume of urine uh, output at night, including the first void of the morning, is more than uh, one-third of the total urine volume uh, that is defined as nocturnal polyuria. Here's an older diary uh, that I used to use. I don't use it anymore. Uh, but this is a gentleman on Flomax who not only has overactive bladder, 
uh, as you can see on the voids in the middle, uh, but on the top and the bottom is his uh, nocturnal output, and his nocturnal output is uh, roughly two times his daytime output. This, this man has nocturnal polyuria and overactive bladder. You can only diagnose that on a diary. This is another diary, uh, but in, in essence, this patient has nocturia and overactive bladder, but really uh, has, has polydipsia uh, causing their symptoms. Uh, the only way you could diagnose that is, again, with a diary. So back to our three circles, polyuria, nocturnal polyuria, and bladder storage problems. We treat bladder storage problems. We're urologists. That's what we do. Uh, polyuria, uh, again, uh, more than uh, uh, 2,800 or 3,000 cc's generally. Um, treatment of nocturnal polyuria uh, uh, is to figure out how to get less uh, nocturnal urine. There are three general categories uh, that you can look at for nocturnal polyuria. That nocturnal polyuria is either due to a behavioral problem or medical disease or a hormonal disorder. Those are the three causes of nocturnal polyuria. Behavioral causes include late administration of diuretics, uh, patients who drink too much before they go to bed, caffeine, alcohol, excessive salt intake. Those are the behavioral causes. Then there are medical diseases that cause nocturnal polyuria, fluid issues, uh, con uh, congestive heart failure, obstructive sleep apnea, uh, peripheral edema, lower extremity edema. That fluid then gets recirculated uh, uh, during, the, uh, during the nighttime when the patient is, is uh, supine. The third category is hormonal, and that's really where treatment for us uh, 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 takes uh, the primary role. So there's two hormonal causes of nocturnal polyuria. One is an abnormal release of arginine vasopressin, and the other is an abnormal release of atrial natriuretic peptide. Atrial natriuretic peptide, not usually in the urologic uh, uh, terminology, uh, but it is released uh, from uh, the atrium uh, in response to a variety of uh, stresses on the heart, uh, including COPD. Uh, that is, uh, once we treat the cardiac condition, again, not what urologists do, uh, we, can, we can treat that. So what are the three, uh, the three categories I just talked to you about for nocturnal polyuria? What do we do for them? Well, for the behavioral causes, uh, we administer behavioral modification, fluid restriction, reduce alcohol and caffeine, maybe put on com some compressive hoses, uh, stockings, if you will, TED hose, if you will. Uh, afternoon lap, naps and elevation of legs and time diuretics all can be helpful for behavioral causes. For medical illness, congestive heart failure, COPD, peripheral edema, we're urologists, uh, they get referred. Uh, you just need to identify that as a contributing cause, and hopefully by contributing or, or treating their medical condition, it will help their nocturnal polyuria. The third group uh, is the hormonal causes. As we age, arginine vasopressin, released from the posterior pituitary, actually decreases as we age. Arginine vasopressin has several effects. There are two receptors that it affects, a V1 receptor and a V2 receptor. The V1 receptors are primarily uh, oppressor effects, uh, vascular and uterine. Uh, that's, again, with endogenous arginine vasopressin. The V2 receptors are the receptors uh, located uh, in the uh, distal and collecting tubules of the kidneys. Those are the ones of interest, the V2 receptors uh, in the distal and collecting uh, tubules of the kidney. And what the V2 receptor activation causes is a fusion of something called an aqua two, uh, aquaporin-2 water channel, which causes free water absorption. What does that look like? This is the best cartoon I've ever seen. 
I'm not a renal physiologist, but I can understand cartoons. And this is a cartoon showing you what AVP does in the kidney. On the uh, left side, uh, that is uh, the, uh, the, uh, the glomerulus and the uh, descending, ascending, and collecting uh, tubule there uh, without uh, AVP. Uh, on the right-hand side, uh, in the presence of AVP, there is free water absorption in the distal tubule resulting in a uh, highly concentrated uh, urine. Uh, that's the best cartoon I can show you, basically pre-absorption of water in the distal tubule. We treat nocturnal polyuria with DDAVP, uh, desmopressin acetate. Why can't we just give uh, arginine vasopressin? It doesn't last very long. Uh, uh, it's gone, it's metabolized very quickly, but if we uh, uh, alter uh, the, the, uh, the molecule, we get desmopressin, it lasts longer. Desmopressin also has most of, it effects, most of its effects at the V2 receptor with very few effects at the V1 receptor, so you don't get the pressor effects that you would get uh, uh, with the endogenous compound. The ICI uh, looked at a DDAVP, uh, again, uh, older formulations. Uh, there are now newer formulations we'll talk about in just a moment, and it was given a, a very uh, high grade. Uh, how well does DDAVP work? And this is, again, the oral formulations. This is a systemic review from a couple of years ago. Looking at 100 micrograms compared to placebo, you reduce your voids 0.72 times, doesn't sound terrific, but really, much more importantly, what we're looking for is improvements in sleep parameters, and DDAVP improves uh, sleep. Uh, you, gain a, you gain about an hour of sleep, uh, and that first hour of sleep, the first time to awakening, is actually the most important sleep. What are the side effects of DDAVP? The most prominent, obviously, is hyponatremia. The overall uh, uh, prevalence is about 7.6%. Risk factors include women, older age, and low sodium at baseline. So uh, these patients get uh, monitored after initiating uh, DDAVP. Uh, you should check a baseline sodium, then a sodium again uh, within that first week and then the first month. And yes, hyponatremia can occur uh, later uh, beyond uh, 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 even if they don't have it initially with the onset of the medication. So sodium levels should be checked uh, ongoing, uh, and uh, uh, generally uh, you can do that every few months. Uh, it can happen, the hyponatremia can happen uh, at any time going forward, but is most likely to happen initially uh, uh, starting the medication. And you should also check sodiums every time you uh, change the, uh, the dose. There are oral tablets and nasal sprays. New formulation uh, was approved by the FDA uh, last year, uh, 2017, uh, called Noctiva. Uh, this is just a, a quick run through of the data. Uh, Noctiva uh, has two different doses, uh, and the, the two colored bars represent uh, the lower and higher dose of Noctiva, and what you see at the higher dose, you're decreasing nocturnal episodes about one and a half times. There is a substantial placebo response in all of these trials uh, for Nocturia. This is looking at a reduction of 50% uh, number of patients who had a reduction in 50% in nocturnal, nocturic episodes. Uh, I turn your attention to the bottom graph, which is the most compelling piece of data, which is the change in time from bedtime to the first nocturnic nocturic episode, the improvement was 108 minutes. Again, you're giving these drugs to improve sleep quality, and what you're seeing is an improvement in the time to first awakening, which is that high quality sleep of 108 minutes. That's, uh, that's rather impressive. 
uh, reduction in nocturnal urine volume, sort of the same way we look at overactive bladder drugs. We want to decrease the nocturnal urine volume, and at the higher doses, uh, there is a substantial reduction in nocturnal uh, urine volume of over 300 cc's. What is the incidence of, of uh, hyponatremia with the newer formulation? There's an incipient in the new formulation, this Noctiva, uh, which improves <coughs> bioavailability but, uh, and reduces, uh, uh, potentially reduces uh, the uh, potential for hyponatremia. And on the right are the uh, lower, uh, low incidence, I should say, of hyponatremia in the trials. Uh, uh, in the two phase three trials. So in conclusion, with respect to nocturia, it's probably the most common lower urinary tract symptom. There are three causes, behavioral, medical, and hormonal. The diary is your most important diagnostic tool. Treatment's based on the underlying cause, and there are new formulation of DDAVP uh, for treatment of nocturnal polyuria, the most common cause of nocturia. Thank you. So what's on, the, what's on the horizon for future pharmacologic therapy? Again, the, it's interesting. These are the successes of drugs going on to clinical trials over a 14-year period. 63% got by phase one. 31% of the ones that got by phase one got by phase two. 58% of the ones that got by phase two got by phase three, so overall 9.6% actually made it through all three phases. So again, the potential management strategies, and although we'd like to do some other things, uh, this is basically what we try to do, what's in yellow. The possible sites of action, we'd love to be able to affect things at a central nervous system level, but mostly what we do basically is we affect these latter three and mostly it's afferent impulses at the moment and some effect on detrusor smooth muscle. What's the main problem in developing new drugs? The concept of uroselectivity that is very specifically on the lower urinary tract uh, and nowhere else. These are all the new possible approaches. Uh, some of them have already been mentioned under combination drugs. You can also combine drugs with other forms of treatment. What we're going to talk about briefly is new variants of currently accepted principles and new targets. So what's on the horizon for anti-muscarinics? Well, here's one, terafenicin, uh, supposedly M3 selective. Question is, is M3 antagonism really the mechanism and is an M3 selective drug any better than a non-selective drug? In phase two trials, decreased urinary frequency, but not urgency, so it's questionable as to what it's going to do. It did have, left, it did have less constipation and dry mouth, and it's in phase three trials now, but if it doesn't decrease urgency, I mean, after all, that's the main symptom of overactive bladder. Here's an interesting rationale. Decrease the dry mouth by giving a sialagogue. So you combine an anti-muscarinic with something like pilocarpine. Um, this is the latest quote, the clinical trials were positive and likely to be published soon. That was in 2017. Uh, Afasafenicin, a non-selective muscarinic antagonist plus a sodium channel blocker. Sodium channel 
blockers block basically afferent impulses. Uh, in phase two, or has gone through phase two, some promise, you know, let's wait and see. The last publication uh, was in this journal down here. Uh, we haven't really heard it very much in one of the more popular journals since, you know, 2014 with the drug. Again, the concern about anticholinergic usage in the elderly, I think, is going to become more popular in the next six months uh, based on the article that I just read in JAMA Neurology, not the article on the tombstone, but basically a, a new article. Beta-3 agonists, you know, are there any on the horizon? Well, there's one, Salabegron. Um, positive results in animal studies, positive phase two studies in women, uh, no changes in heart rate, EKG, blood pressure. A once daily preparation has been developed. There's also a twice daily preparation. Uh, this is a quote from one of the articles that's been written about the drug. Um, you know, let's basically wait, wait and see. Another, Ritabegron, again, a problem got through phase one and phase two, did not get through phase three, so cross that one off your list. This is sort of a familiar saga with some drugs, unfortunately. Um, great effects in animals. Um, phase one, increase the volume at the first contraction. If that's all it did, you begin to worry a little bit. The phase two and three results were never published, and this was the final quote. Um, there's a number of beta-3 agonists in the pipeline, as you would expect. A number of companies hoping to be at least second to market. It's interesting that when looking at these, what's been recently discovered is that the beta-3s, in addition to the afferent effect and the direct effects on smooth muscle, actually decrease the amount of acetylcholine released from the prejunctional cholinergic nerve terminals, so another way to decrease um, bladder contractility. Vibegron is one that was actually the preliminary results were presented here uh, by Roger Domikowski the other day. Uh, positive animal studies, uh, positive bladder strip studies in terms of a, what they called the synergistic effect uh, with non-selective cholinergic agents, but peculiarly not selective cholinergic agents. Uh, this was a study actually that's in press now in European urology, uh, basically looking at a double-blind placebo control and in terms of two doses versus placebo um, in terms of, whoops, in terms of frequency, uh, basically urgency, urgency urinary incontinence, which is a really major parameter. You can see it's 1.5 reduction from the baseline, which is 1.97, and 1.5 from 1.86. Doesn't appear to be much of a difference in dose. And the placebo, so you'll have to judge for yourself, you know, whether that's an improvement, um, you know, over Mirabegron. You know, is it, it's reported to be safer, at least on paper. So. It'll be interesting to see what Vibegron does. I think that there's hope for this drug. The phosphodiesterase inhibitors in men, as I mentioned, this is the only one approved in the U.S. for male LUTs, but there's no reason why these shouldn't be approved as well uh, because it's a similar mechanism of action. 
And why do these decrease male lower urinary tract symptoms? Well, I think it's really, you know, on the basis of increased perfusion and a decrease of, you know, oxidative products and oxidative metabolism. As Chris mentioned, uh, propivirine is another drug with mixed action. It's actually not available in, in this country. Uh, there's an extended release version of propivirine available now, and this was a comparison against tilteridine, ER four milligrams. I'm not sure why they chose tilteridine, maybe because they figured it would be an easy hit. Uh, as you can see, the comparison in frequency versus tolteridine. This number comes straight out of the article. It's a very strange article. If this is the urgency reduction, the number of urgency episodes, I mean, that's pretty good. This is voided volume, not much different, and the frequency is not much different. So it's not clear to me whether this was a misprint and that was supposed to be 1.6 or really 0.6. But again, I suspect that a company is going to bring propivirine extended release to market um, in the United States. Amatophenicin is a kind of an odd drug. It was brought out first as an anti-muscarinic that was bladder selective. Um, in clinical trials, there's no difference in urgency and continence results over solifenicin or propivirine. There's no difference in frequency. Um, or overactive bladder symptom scores. It has been reported to have a favorable effect on nocturia and the NPI, the nocturnal polyuric index. It's essentially the percent of urine that's secreted at night, so bringing nocturnal polyuria volume down uh, and all with decreased constipation and dry mouth. It's not approved in the U.S. Um, it is used in Japan and Taiwan. You know, let's basically see what happens. Uh, Deloxetine, as Chris mentioned, was used for both overactive bladder, still is used for stress urinary incontinence overseas. It was withdrawn from the approval process for lower urinary tract symptoms in the U.S. It's surprising that it was effective in overactive bladder, but the studies that were shown to be favorable were never repeated and it was never developed further for this. And I think the reason is that it had a very high withdrawal rate because of increased adverse events in the first month of usage. You can use any of these uh, off-label. Some people use gabapentin, but none of these have ever been really tried in a systematic double-blind placebo-controlled study. Amitriptyline has, but for interstitial cystitis alone. Uh, so although there's anecdotal success with these, They've never been really properly tried, and they're not approved in the U.S. Unfortunately, these are victims of non-euroselectivity. Potassium channel openers, boy, what a great idea. If you could develop one that was specific just for the bladder, wow. Uh, same thing with calcium cha channel antagonists. Um, unfortunately, not euroselective, therefore, for our purposes, not useful. The prostanoid receptor antagonist, um, one of those things that gave very promising results in animal models, minimal results in clinical trials. Uh, maybe prostaglandin stimulation of bladder contractility might be a management strategy for improving detrusor underactivity. Vitamin D agonist, uh, positive in quotes, means minimal 
but positive statistically, uh, minimally positive, you know, clinically when tried, neurokinin antagonists, uh, nice idea. Uh, there's a story about at least one, uh, the neurokinin receptor antagonists, they block induced detrusor overactivity. Uh, basically, this is the story about one of them, which seemed to give positive results in at least postmenopausal women. This was the results in terms of frequency. This was the results in terms of daily urgency episodes. Unfortunately, it was found to have drug-drug interactions and was not used for that. So another was developed without the drug-drug interactions and compared to tolteridine. Um, unfortunately, tolteridine was superior to all the doses and the development was dropped. It was never quite clear why they didn't try combining the two, which seems like a logical sort of move since the two have different mechanisms of action. And I suspect someone will come up with combining an NK1 antagonist and an antimuscarinic or beta-3 agonist. Gamma-aminobutyric acid is the chief inhibitory compound in the central nervous system. Um, you know, again, this is the kind of quotes that you read promising result in animals, further studies of this agent would be of interest. Well, it would be great if that worked. This was a finding that uh, caused almost a revolution when this finding was first published about ATP and sensory elements and the fact that it was the purinergic of the 2X3 receptor that was expressed on bladder afferent terminals and that you could produce a knockout animal that showed increased intercontraction intervals. Um, unfortunately, it's never proven to be terribly useful clinically, so in the last seven years, there's been nothing about this. The transient receptor potential antagonists, again, um, a, another one of those instances where in the animals they seem to work because there's sensors to stretch and chemical irritation. Um, I'll skip through that. Uh, with the TRP1s, hyperthermia was a problem. With the TRPM8 antagonists, um, was hypothermia for one preparation and a burning sensation around the mouth in another. And this was the conclusion in an editorial that was written in the British Journal about TRP receptors, and I think that that still holds some three years after the comment was made. Cannabinoids, you can get an idea by walking down the street here, taking a deep breath and seeing what happens to your bladder storage. Um, there have been some suggestions that it improves urgency, and I suspect that it does, especially in neurogenic detrusor overactivity. Um, but again, there are no definite trials. I suspect that someone is going to jump on this and produce a commercial cannabinoid that's just for lower urinary tract symptoms. Opioid receptors, uh, there's a drug called tramadol that reported positive results, but the study was later retracted, and this was the quote as to why it was retracted. Um, whether mu opioid receptor agonists are going to prove to be useful in overactive bladder basically is, uh, is a question. Other ideas, maybe use liposome encapsulated Botox and still it into the bladder. There was a lot of flap about this initially. Um, this was the comment from the reviewers in Nature Reviews 
um, basically. So as many times, not exactly what the authors intended to show in their original article, but probably true. Hasn't been much moved there. So as far as the possibilities, I think the title is pretty apt, a tale of limited success, great expense on the part of the companies, and still some hope. Thank you. CME is available for this podcast at the AUA University, university.auanet.org.